over to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, But there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pray. Father, you are good and holy and righteous and far greater than our minds can fully grasp. Father, we come to you in utter dependence, humble, in need of your grace. Even a passage like this, Lord, causes us to tremble. Our minds don't completely understand it. Our hearts are agitated against it. But you are God. I pray for this congregation, Lord. I pray that you will give them ears to hear, hearts to embrace your word, and to trust you. Help us, God. It is only by your grace that we will understand these truths. We love you. We need you. We are committed to you by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated.
as we have tracked through the Gospel of Romans, major doctrinal tensions arise in our minds and, our, and, and in our hearts in light of God's sovereignty. When we really understand that mankind is sinful and only by a great work of God can a person be saved, a number of questions and concerns enter our minds. Listen to me, beloved. These are often hard truths to reconcile in our minds. We need the Lord's help to humbly accept what his word says, even when it creates discomfort to our souls. The ultimate solution for our souls to these difficult truths is a humble submission to the sovereign God. I pray all of us do this. I've been praying for you this week as I've been thinking through teaching this passage. It is my desire that everybody in the room fully embrace these truths. Allowing the difficulties that will percolate in your heart to be there, and yet you continue to trust him in the midst of that. In Romans 1.18 to 3.20, we have the truth that every single person on this earth is condemned in his or her own sinfulness. The pagan who never hears the gospel knows there is a God, but they suppress the truth and come up with their own God in their own minds. And even God's chosen people, the Jews, stand condemned, many of them, because no amount of law-keeping or seeking to be a good person will save a single soul. The vast majority of the world stands condemned under the righteous wrath of God, including many of God's chosen people, the Jews. This means that approximately 7 billion people on the planet, out of the 7 billion, many are headed towards God's judgment. Yes, praise the Lord, God does save many. And we are thankful for that, aren't we? But sadly, as Jesus said, wide is the way that leads to destruction. And many go that way. So there's a joy over the salvation of God's children, but a great grief over the lost. This is the paradoxical heart that a believer has. It's a tension. It's a struggle within our souls. Somehow we can have fullness of joy in our souls over who God is and what Christ has done for us. But yet at the very same time, juxtaposed to that is a overwhelming grief that sits in tension with that joy. It's a great tension. Again, I'm reminded, we often think that to follow Jesus makes an easier life but in fact, it makes a much harder life. It produces in us an agony, but yet a joy 
that is in constant conflict within our souls continuously. Where error comes is when we ignore one of the other. When we say no to the joy and we just become harsh in the agony. Or we embrace the agony and forget the joy. Either way, we must have the tension. It must sit in our souls always. In Romans 3, 21 to 5, 21, we saw that the, the truth that anyone who trusts in Christ is declared right with God. They're justified, declared with righteous with Him. But this justification is only limited to those who what? Trust or believe in Jesus Christ alone. By grace through faith, all who believe are justified. But sadly, because of Adam, all of mankind, apart from saving faith in Jesus, are condemned and are not righteous. So even the vast majority of God's people presently, the Jews, who have not trusted in Jesus, remain under the judgment of God. And everyone who believes in what they do to save them is headed towards eternal condemnation, separated from God forever. No amount of good works for their religion is going to save them, whether it's doing good works for Judaism, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Islam, hedon, uh, hedonism, Hinduism, Buddhism, or any other religion. What's the reality? If you are trying to work your way to heaven, you're what? Going in the wrong direction. So all of this means that there is a great number who are separated from God. So the tension in our hearts grows, doesn't it? In Romans 8, we have the truth that salvation from justification all the way to glorification is guaranteed for God's adopted children. And we all rejoice in that, don't we? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Is there not a greater joy that comes over our hearts when we contemplate this? However, for the billions of lost people who God doesn't effectually call, glory is not their final destiny. Even for the majority of God's firstborn, the Jews, there is no hope of final glorification for the vast majority of God's chosen people, Israel, right now. Rather, they face a terrifying future, separated from God. When we meditate on these truths in tension, we are burdened greatly, aren't we? We're thankful for our hope, but we agonize for the lost. These are sobering truths, aren't they? The reality of the lost world is almost too much to bear. And at times I find myself weeping to the Lord. How about you? Weeping. It's hard when we have friends and family that seem to be 
relatively good on the outside. But they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And any time we bring up Christ to them, they seem to hate us and put out the stiff arm. They don't have repentance. We know their time's not over till they breathe their last, but there is definitely an awareness that what? It doesn't look good. Their direction looks bad. As Paul unfolded the gospel to the Romans, this tension would naturally arise in the minds of the Christians. How can this be? The church is relatively small, and the vast majority of our city is rejecting Jesus. The second, the church is filled with predominant, predominantly Gentiles. God's chosen people, God's own chosen people are only a small minority of this church in Rome. How can this be? In fact, another conflict arises. If God promised the Jews restoration and reconciliation in the future, but the vast majority are rejecting the Messiah, then can God be trusted to keep his promises? Will he be faithful to his promises to us also? As we saw in Romans 8, our salvation is secure. The believer who is chosen by God cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. We said it. We know it. He said it. He ended Romans 8 with that. But God made sincere and similar promises to the children of Israel. And most of them are not receiving Jesus and being included in these salvation promises. So the tension arises. There's two truths that seem to be sitting, sitting in opposition. One, most of God's people, Israel, are presently under the wrath of God. In conflict with, and yet God's word says, he chose them to be his people and they will not stop being a nation before him forever. Those two truths just sit and they go... So we arrive at an important question. If God said he would provide salvation for the Jews, then why is it that a large majority of them are not being saved presently? If God said it, why aren't a large majority being saved? Or in fact, why are any of them going to hell? The question can also be applied to all of us, can it? And all who do not have genuine faith in Christ when they die. Why doesn't God save everyone? For that matter, why has the vast majority of our neighbors and countrymen rejected God and therefore headed to hell? Why is it? To be saved, God must save us, correct? 
We've found this. It's so obvious through the book of Romans. By now we are convinced, aren't we? Because none seek after God. So God has to seek us. God must effectually call us. God must give us hearts that turn from sin and believe in Him. God must declare us right. God must adopt us. God must preserve us. God must glorify us in order for us to be brought to glory and saved from His wrath. So what about everybody else? Especially the Jews who are God's chosen people. Why doesn't God adopt everybody? <laughs> it would be easy to make up our own excuse, right? And blame it on the free will of man. But notice, this isn't what Paul does in his word. Again, we can only believe if we are born of God, not born of the will of flesh. We are not free because our sin nature has made us in bondage to sin apart from God's grace. We can't seek after God because we are dead in sin apart from the grace of God. It takes Him working in us in order for us to believe, right? Ultimately, the majority of Israel is rejecting God presently because he has yet to circumcise their hearts. <laughs> so there's this great conflict in the Apostle Paul's heart as he begins to explain God's sovereign plan for Israel. And if we have to trust in God's promises to assure us of our own salvation but God's promises to Israel are not being kept, then what assurance do we have? We need those answers, don't we? That's why Paul brings it up and says, okay, let's do it. Let me explain. Ultimately, our hope is in our sure adoption if God is a God of his word. And he is. He is a God of his word. He's faithful. So now Paul begins to deal with these apparent difficulties. As he introduces one tension, he shows what should be going on in the believer's heart in light of the conflict. I love Paul's transparency here. I just love how he just opens up his heart and shows it to us. He gives us a glimpse of what's going on. By the way... Beloved, to be perfectly honest with you, I wonder if Paul walked in occasionally into a church service and, or into a gathering of believers and everybody says to him, what's wrong, Paul? Why, don't, why aren't you smiling? What's the matter, brother? And his response was, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, but grieving over my, in my soul. Friends, I want you to hear me. This is just a side note. Church is not a time for us to clean up 
and make, put smiles on, fake smiles when we're hurting, when we're grieving in our soul over the lost, don't fake it with a smile. Be honest. Now, if you're grieving because you have too many bills, that's a whole different issue. <laughs> but if you're grieving over the lost or grieving over the struggling brother or sister, it's okay. Don't fake it. Aren't you glad Paul didn't? By him being transparent, we see a glimpse into the heart of man, a believer, at tug of war with condemnation, wrath, and sovereignty and joy all at the same time. Today we're going to get a look at some of the difficulties that arise in our minds as we contemplate God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty is revealed, explained, and defended. There's three sections. We won't get through all three. We'll do this over the next couple weeks. God's sovereignty revealed and to produce grief for his own. God's sovereignty explained to be faithful. God's sovereignty defended to be righteous. Let's start with God's sovereignty revealed to produce grief for his own. Look at Romans 9, 1. I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons, the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises, who are the Father, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Do you see what amazing conflict is going on in his soul here? You've got worship and grief. You've got overwhelming sorrow and overwhelming joy. It's right there. In six verses, you have the glimpse into the heart of a believer that is living in a world that is under God's sovereign control. The vast majority are lost and dying and going to hell. It's important to understand this chapter as a call to rightly understand God in his proper position as sovereign father. God is faithful to his providential promises. God is righteous in all that he does. Even if we don't understand it, he is righteous. He is faithful. Ultimately, the summary of this chapter is, God is God, and we are his children by grace alone, so we must trust him. God is God. We are his children by grace alone, so we must trust him. 
yet we don't live in a vacuum. And God's sovereign will, this side of eternity, has some painful experiences for us to walk through. Notice the pain is revealed in verse 1. The tension produces a great amount of sorrow and grief in Paul. Notice first, God's firstborn are in a perilous position. God's firstborn are in a perilous position. One area Paul faced the largest opposition in his preaching was concerning his own kinsmen. Five times he had been beaten 39 times by the Jews. Five times by this time. So, so I got to admit to you, I've been in a little bit of a wrestling match here <laughs> myself. Because here is the Apostle Paul expressing how much he is what? Completely committed and loving his fellow kinsmen. He loves them with a love that is far beyond anything that I feel like I've experienced in myself. I'm just being perfectly honest. I don't know about you, but if every time you went into a synagogue, you began to preach the gospel, it ended up getting you beaten. I would begin to think, good riddance, my kinsmen. I could care less about you. I don't want any part of you. I'm done with you. He was preaching a message, though, that they hated. What was the message? Jesus is the Christ, the one that was crucified on a cross that you killed. That didn't go over well. Add to it, he died to pay for Gentiles, too. <laughs> what? That was too much. He died to pay for Gentiles also? You can see. You track through Acts, you see. They hated him. They despised him. And they despised the Jesus he proclaimed. So if you were penning these words, if I were penning these words, I don't know if I could say I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies in me, in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart for my kinsmen. <laughs> Wouldn't it be the opposite? I wish they would all die. Might be what some of us would think. Go away. Leave me alone. I just want to hide. But the opposite is true. Why? The love of God is in his soul. He knows Christ. He knows Christ died for him. So he loves them with an unconditional love. 
a love that's far beyond anything I can even fully comprehend. And all I can say is it's spirit-produced love. <laughs> and that is my prayer. How about you? Oh, God, give me that kind of love for the world. For even those that persecute us and even those that mistreat me. Oh, God, give me a love for them that's willing to die for them. I want this. I have it to a degree. Maybe not quite there at times. Am I the only one? My heart's not always there. But God, but God, but God loves me. And by his grace, we can have this heart too. And we do have this heart, don't we? The tension produces in Paul a great amount of sorrow and grief and it's over his firstborn, God's firstborn kinsman, the Jews. Notice he says, I am telling the truth. He says three things. He kind of makes this emphatic. Make sure you get this down. I'm telling the truth in Christ. If it's in Christ, it's what? And it's true. <laughs> I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. <laughs> it's the positive and the, the negative. It's. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. And my heart testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that this is true. What's true? What is true? That he has great sorrow and unceasing grief for these people. He really is burdened by them. He really does love them, care for them, desire for them. He really cares. This is a far cry from our uh, hardened hearts that watch the news and say, well, they're getting what they deserve. It's a hard, far cry from the hearts that watch the pride parade and weep. Versus the hearts that watch the pride parade and say monkeypox is what they deserve. A heart that knows the gospel. A heart that knows the love of Christ. Grieves. drives us to crazy love. Out of this world kind of love. Literally translated here, my sorrow is great and unceasing grief is in my heart. This is an interesting look again into his heart and the heart of a believer. 
while there's obviously great joy in knowing that Christ died for us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ, at the same time there's great sorrow and unceasing grief for the unbeliever that faith may not be the same. Paul's sorrow is great. As we've said, being a believer doesn't mean we will always be happy. We also have sorrow. And there's nothing wrong with us if we do have sorrow. Unless our sorrow is based on selfishness. Do you get that? That's a big difference. For grieving because we didn't get what we want, we're really just throwing an adult temper tantrum. But if we grieve over truth and others and the loss of others, that's normal and right and good. I have a continuous overwhelming sorrow is what Paul says. This is another tension revealed in this verse. In the heart of the believer is great sorrow and great joy, satisfaction, but unceasing grief. This is a great preparation here for all of us as we deal with the very difficult issues of Romans 9. Listen closely, beloved. No born-again believer rejoices over the condemnation of the lost. None of us do. I've often heard people say that if you are reformed or Calvinistic in your doctrine, you really don't care about the lost. Once when I stood for this doctrine and it started Grace Bible Church, I was accused of hating all those in Africa that never heard the gospel. That could not be further from the truth. No one who understands the justice of God rejoices over a soul getting what it deserves. We grieve. As a matter of fact, some of this grief is what drives us to continue to proclaim the gospel, right? Because God in his forbearance and patience has provided a way for us to then go proclaim the gospel and see his elect come to Christ. So we proclaim the gospel even more boldly. Sorry. We do it with passion and vigor and unashamed because we know the solution is what? Trusting in Christ. If they trust in Christ, they're not condemned. And we know that God's providence has us go, as Romans 10 will say. So we proclaim with boldness, don't we? <laughs> When we fully grasp this, we cry over our neighbors. We don't condemn them. As a matter of fact, this grief drives us to even go more. As we think on the holy wrath of God being poured out on people who are rejecting God, we should be brought to the end of ourselves. It causes unceasing grief and sorrow in our heart, just like Paul. As I've said, knowing God is sovereign over salvation doesn't cause us to sit back and do nothing. It causes us to run out and proclaim, be saved, trust in Christ. God makes it clear 
that no one is saved without hearing the gospel, and so we proclaim it. Finally, we see here, though, look at the depth of his desire for their deliverance. This is shocking. Shocking. He states, for I wish that I could be anathema. I could be anathema? I could literally be eternally condemned and judged by God forever. Do you understand how stunning that is? That is stunning. Here are the kinsmen, the ones that had beaten him, and everywhere he goes, they hate him. And he's saying, I, for I wish that I could trade my salvation for theirs? That I could take the condemnation from God for them? And they could be delivered. How does he have this kind of love? He knows that nothing can separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Does he say this just hyperbo- with hyperbole? In other words, he's just saying this as like an overspeak? No, I think he's legitimate. I think he literally says, I would give my soul for you. For them. For the sake of my kinsmen. I desire I could switch places with my people. I want to take the wrath of God so they won't. This is a lot, isn't it? It's heavy, isn't it? Paul understands the vast majority of his Jews are going to hell. And Paul feels this perilous position that they're in. He feels it deep in his soul. There's sorrow and unceasing grief. And he, he loves them so much. And he'd give it all up. And it's not because he doesn't love Christ, because he loves Christ. But his attention right now is on his love for them. His focus is on his love for them. And it's a painful tension, isn't it? Second, God's own were promised worship, though. He knows their condition is bad, doesn't he? How does he know? Look at it, verse 4. Who are Israelites, those that he would trade places with, they're Israelites. To whom belongs the adoption as sons, the glory, and the covenant, and the giving of the law, and the temple services, and the promises. Who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. Look at these promises for Israel, beloved. They're stunning, aren't they? What promises this nation got, this people group got from God? They are Israel. Paul would trade places with national Israel. Is his point? He loves national Israel, his kinsmen. Now, Israel was the name of who? Jacob. Jacob. After he had wrestled with God, Genesis 32, God changes Jacob's name to Israel, right? The name was very ironic, wasn't it? 
It means to strive with God. And boy, did they. They battled him. Kind of reminds me of raising teenagers. No offense, kids, I love you. To whom belongs the adoption as sons? This is literally translated the right way, the adoption as sons. Adoptions, by the way, is the same word that's used where? In Romans 8, 15, and 23, about us. Hmm. In Exodus 4, 22, God says through Moses, Israel is my firstborn son. Hmm. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. Huh. Is this mean then that those that he had adopted, he what? Abandoned? No. Israel's called as adopted sons, and here Israel are the adopted children. This privilege looks to the future with a foundation in the past. Israel is the adopted people of God. At the, time, at the same time, all believers are called now adopted children. That's us. And who do we cry out to? Abba, Father, our Father, because we're adopted. It's important to note Paul's primary focus right now, however, is on national Israel as his adopted people. You can't get around it. That's what his focus is. This is the illustration. So what's going on? If the Israelites are his children, why is he not revealing himself to them? If he has to work in their, the heart of a person to enable them to see and receive him as their Lord and Savior, why isn't he saving his sons? Why isn't he saving his firstborn sons? I mean, we saw this in Romans 8, didn't we? That those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Right? Called means effectually called. Right? So why isn't he effectually calling his adopted children? So everybody in the room's now at the tension spot, right? Wrestling a little. And then he says, and the glory. <laughs> the glory obviously reminds us of Romans 8 also, right? Because what's promised for us? I'll give you a hint. The same word. Glory. <laughs> glory. They were promised the glory. You can't read Jeremiah 31, 31 and hear about the new covenant and not say, there's a promise of glory for Israel. There's a promise for glory. Remember how this theme was previously mentioned even in our context. God's righteousness is revealed in the guaranteed glorification of his children. So can we trust God to glorify us if he promised to glorify Israel and it doesn't look like it's happening? <laughs> now, again, 
At this point, some of us in the room are like, okay, get on with it, Pastor Mike. Get on with it. I get it. I just want to warn you just for a second. One of the reasons why we struggle so much to understand words, uh, the Word of God is because when it becomes one of these moments, we just flip past it. And we don't let it do what? It needs to hit our souls. <laughs> it needs to hit your soul. See, you're not going to love the lost until it hits your soul. Do you hear me? Until you really wrestle with this, you're not really going to get it. I can preach this perfectly, and that won't happen. But I can preach this perfectly. And if you do not let it sit and let the Spirit work in your heart and humbly cry out to Him, change me. It's just going to go in one ear and out the other. And we'll walk out and not be changed by this. And we can't walk out of here without being changed by this. We need God, don't we? The covenants. The covenants are probably Abrahamic, Davidic, and the new covenant. They were given these covenants. They were promised these covenants. And they speak of God's gracious favor for his people. So can we trust that God will continue to bless us in the new covenant? If the covenant promises were made first to Judah and Israel and many of them aren't? Yes, we can. The word says we can. The privileges also include the giving of the law, the temple services, the promises of the Old Testament. The Gentiles are accepting the Jewish Messiah and they are getting blessed, but the Jews are not. They're actually, and I'm going to shock you here, they're being judged. Romans 11, there is a partial hardening on them. Just like the hardening of Pharaoh's heart coming up in 9. So what does Paul do with this? He grieves and has unceasing grief for them, sorrow. Finally, and from Israel is the Christ according to the flesh. Now this is so interesting to me. What a privilege it is to be Jewish, <laughs> to be in the, a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are their blood relatives. So what's important about this is that the Christ had to come through the lineage. See, the Christ had to be 100% what? Man. And 100% God. The Messiah had to be God and man. And it had to come through the flesh through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is that, a, does that, is that a big deal? Oh, yeah, because if there's no human sacrifice for our sins, we are what? Lost. But because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
the descendant, the Christ, would come in the flesh. At this point, Paul is like overwhelmed. (laughs) Grieving over his kinsmen, but worshiping God over, wow, what a plan. (laughs) What a God (laughs) who is blessed forever, amen. He can't help but say what? Worthy are you, God, to be praised forever. Amen. It kind of reminds me of Romans 1. Remember when he talked about the pagans that said no to God? And, and even though that God shows himself, they, they reject it. And even though they know that he is the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. <laughs> it's the same thing as he contemplates the creator as the great God. Even though he's showing the condemned status of the pagan, he's also wanting to worship God at the same time. And the same thing happens here. He's contemplating the the lostness of the majority of the Jews, God's people. And yet at the same time, he's what? Worshiping God over what God has done in Christ. By the way, if you worship people... You'll never get there. If it's all about humans, you're in trouble. If you're our lives about Christ, then whatever happens in this world will still produce what? We'll still have worship, even in the midst of it. But it's not as though the world of God has failed. That's such an amazing, great truth, isn't it? Has God's word failed. No. God had a plan. God has a plan. God is working out his plan perfectly. We are better off than what we deserve. All of us know that. But God has a plan. And notice God's sovereign faithfulness is explained in this next section. But it's not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descendants from Israel. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was also Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of the works, but because of him who calls, there it is again, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Obviously, I wanted to give you a little preview ahead because I wanted to answer the tension to a degree before we closed. Again, we can't stress this enough, beloved. There is an answer. There's an answer to the struggle within our souls. Now, it's very important for you to understand that Paul knew the answer before he started writing the argument. Do you understand? Did you hear what I just said? And he still had what? The unceasing grief and continuous sorrow. (laughs) And he still had what? A desire, a love, a commitment to them, so much so that he was willing to lay down 
his life. He knew the answer, but it didn't make him hardened. And it didn't make him proud. It humbled him. I mentioned this to one of our deacons before the service. Beloved, one of the difficulties that we all have, all of us that have embraced the answer, that not all Israel is Israel and God chooses whom he will choose. And God is in control of election. And we can all say we know that. But if we have that and we don't have the heart of compassion towards the lost, then we're missing something great. I don't want to be a church that can proclaim the Calvinistic or the Reformed or the doctrines of grace backwards and forwards and we walk around as if we're hardened, cold, ugly people. The doctrine should do what? Soften us. Have you heard of cage stage Calvinism before? Do you understand that that is a lie? That's a lie. Because if you truly understand the doctrines of grace, it should be the opposite effect on you. It should completely humble you to the place that you are desperately in need of God and so say, I'm nothing. The cage stage Calvinist really hasn't grasped the depths of the grace of God in their life. For at the moment we understand the grace of God in our life, the moment is that moment is the moment that we're really broken for others. And we grieve in our hearts. I don't want to be that hardened guy, do you? And as the world comes against me, I don't want to be that guy that says, well, you're probably not the elect anyway. Because the fact of the matter is that anybody up to the age of 22, if they met me, they would have probably said, what? The same. All of us, right? Aren't you glad that God can save up to the last breath? Amen. And there ain't these little markings on your head saying elect. You don't have ease on your head. So what do we do? We go proclaim the gospel to everybody. Trusting Christ. I want to challenge you. We talked in an elder meeting this week about the need for us to be an even more evangelistic church. I want to challenge you. Why don't you go with us evangelizing? <laughs> Why don't you come out with us? You say, well, maybe I can't go out on Sunday afternoon, but I want to go a different time. I'll tell you what. You call me up, I'll go with you. I got an elder board that I'm fairly sure they'll go with you anytime. Need to go a different time? We want, to, we want you to go. Why? Because we know there's lost. And we want to participate with God in seeing the elect come to Christ. So let's go share Christ with others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I pray for us. I pray for our hearts these hard truths 
I pray that you will help us to embrace who you are and yet not become hardened or proud, but to be humbled by this truth, recognizing it's only because of your unmerited grace and mercy that we are saved. Lord, we worship you. You sent your son to die for us. And we worship you. All glory be to Christ is our prayer. And Lord, we pray that for that soul that's in this room that's wrestling, that's struggling and not submitted to the Lord Jesus, we pray that you will grant repentance. Cause them to see that their hope is not in themselves and that they are a sinner in need of a Savior. God, I pray that you will work in them. We pray this in Jesus' name.